Welcome back to the Top People podcast. We've all experienced that worry of what to say to a friend or a loved one when terrible things happen. We're sometimes paralysed by fear of saying the wrong thing, of causing further upset, and so can end up saying nothing. Alan Pike provides support to people who've been through the most traumatic events as part of his work for an organisation called CCP. Alan's got sparkly eyes, a kind face, and he's calm and has a soothing voice. He's just the sort of person you'd be willing to put your trust in when faced with horrendous times. CCP and Alan and Partners have supported missing people over many years now, helping us to develop our support services for families missing a loved one. Alan first introduced himself to the charity after supporting Kate and Jerry McCann shortly after Madeline went missing. I knew that Alan had had a career as a social worker before joining CCP in 2004. What I didn't know was that he'd been through a personal tragedy too. Here, he shares with us his ideas of ways to support and help people going through trauma. And he also shares with us his deeply personal story. Long story short, um, well, I was asked to join the company I work for now, asked to join CCP. Um, and that was a, as a result of being um, supported by them myself and then becoming kind of friends with one of the partners. In 2003, New Year's Eve, I lost my brother. He was killed with his fiance in a road traffic accident in South Africa. They were away on a trekking holiday for Christmas. We judged him before he went for being away for the family at Christmas. And, oh. But it was an indicator of how much he loved this girl he went trekking with. They'd arranged to be married the following year and what have you, so we were looking forward to their wedding in the, the fo- following spring in, uh, in May, June of 2004. And it was New Year's Eve and I got a phone call from my other brother. There's three of us, I'm the eldest. And um, so my brother Graham rang me up and I'm automatically thinking, 20, 20 to midnight, he's given me a call to say, Happy New Year, I'll see you tomorrow. Uh, he said, Alan, I've got the police are at the door. He's just been told that, that our Neil's, he's lost his life on holiday. And of course, we both knew he was out there. And my first reaction was the same as anybody who's told that, you know, a close uh, a relative has, has, has died. There's a mistake. You've got this wrong. Or is it a joke? That's often kind of, you know, people's first reaction. And so after a minute of processing this and the friends that we were having a house party with at home looking at me and my wife catching my eye thinking, this is an unusual phone call, what's wrong? Uh, there I was 20 minutes later in a, a taxi driving around the M60 uh, over to, to be with him in Warrington and um, get all this information from the police about the accident in South Africa. And um, he'd, been, he'd lost his life um, in a minibus accident with a number of other people from the UK. Um, the, the minibus was travelling along the road and a, a young guy, South African guy with mental health issues, attempted to commit suicide by jump throwing himself in front of the, the, the minibus. And uh, the, the driver tried to take evasive action and um, the minibus snaked with the trailer with the camping gear that they were um, that they were towing along. And the minibus detached from the trailer and um, eight people were, were killed, including uh, Neil and Chris. So. Um, 
Um, we worked with the tour operator who were great, they looked after us and they offered us the opportunity to go out there and you know be with him which is what my mum obviously wanted to, to do and um, so I went and supported mum to, to bring Neil back basically. Uh, and I'll never forget at Manchester Airport walking into a lounge there, kind of still in a bit of a daze two or three days later to, to get a shuttle down to Heathrow to catch a South African flight. And um, and this chap walked up to me and said, "Hi, I'm Michael. So I'm going to be travelling with you down there." And um, I'd clocked already from a couple of emails or phone calls that we were going to be accompanied by what at the time I regarded to be a, a counsellor that was provided by the tour operator. And my mum looked at me as I to say, "Who's this guy?" I said, "It's okay, mum. He's one of us. He's with the he's with the tour. He's a counsellor." He's going to look after us. So um, yeah, so he flew out there with us, and um, and he did the things with us and for us that I now do for many of the families that we work with when incidents do take place abroad. Um, the support he provided was, you know, a listening ear, um, questions that we had that were a little bit sensitive or maybe political or controversial in terms of the things that we wanted to do, the people we wanted to see going to see the minibus, return to the place where the accident had taken place and just get information about what had happened. A perfectly natural thing for people who are going through that kind of trauma to mm. want to, to get, they, they need information. And so he, um, he did one or two um, really therapeutic, useful things for us while we were out there, including um, bringing my mother together with the mother of the young man who committed suicide in front of the bus, so if you like the chap who caused the accident, yeah. my mother was brought together with um, with his mum in a small mud hut in Ladysmith in the KwaZulu-Natal and they couldn't speak the same language but they just spent half an hour together looking at each other, hugging, holding hands and, and then they left. Wow. And it was Michael that kind of realised that that was important for my mum to do. Um, I guess you could say she wanted to to ensure that there was no blame from our side to, to the chap that caused the accident with his actions. Um, and then we returned to the UK after a few days and the funeral took place um, and Michael and I stayed in touch. Um, he provided me with some ongoing support, just kind of getting back to normal routines. Yeah. I took a few weeks off, off work and had to go through sorting out, you know, Neil's house and estate and so on and so forth. Um, my mum wasn't able to do that. Uh, and Michael was quite good at kind of, you know, just being at the end of the phone, really. Um, and I was checking that, you know, where I was up to in recovering from losing, you know, your baby brother, mm. that, that um, I was where you might expect somebody to be. I'll, I'll never forget, it was, um, it was my birthday the following May and I was out with, with my wife and the two kids um, and we were cycling along the, the River Mersey going for a bit of a, a picnic and I got a phone call. He said, Alan, this is um, a very strange call but um, it feels like I'm about to jump off a, a very high diving board. He said, there's an opportunity at CCP and I wondered whether you'd be interested in meeting and talking about perhaps come and joining the team. So I've been with the, the company now for, yeah, 13 years. And, um, and do you remember the first person you supported who'd been through a trauma? I do. 
Well, we had a call um, about an incident that took place in a Mediterranean resort, and it was um, it was a woman who'd been sexually assaulted um, while she was away. Uh, there I was, you know, less than a year after receiving the support, being the person offering it to another family. So, um, yeah, I remember it very, very well. And the couple that I, I helped and looked after, the lady herself, um, I met her very soon after landing. I was taken to sit with her, introduced to her by the, um, the resort manager. She'd been through the, the process of being looked after by hospital and, and, and police and had been discharged. And, uh, and we sat in a room for three hours and, um, and we just talked. And um, her husband was to fly out later that afternoon and evening and it was evident that her greatest fear was being reunited with him. Um, she was petrified. Why was that? It's something I've come across with women and men who've experienced sexual assaults over the years. Um, there are a range of feelings from um, guilt, embarrassment, shame, did I make a mistake, was it my fault? And how does that leave the relationship I have with my husband now? What will he think of me? Will he want to be with me again? When I'd finished that session with her, I remember getting a knock on the door um, from, from the resort manager who said, husband's here in resort and he needs to speak to you. And it was evident we had a problem because he was coming from it from a completely different angle and his fear was also about being reunited with his wife. Yeah. But for very different reasons. His fear was around, I don't know what to say. How do you, what's the first thing you say to your partner who you know has been sexually assaulted? And so they were both frightened of reuniting for very different reasons. And so I did a similar exercise with him. We sat down for two or three hours and we talked through those fears. Um, and I was able to help answer many, many questions he had, generally about sexual assault but also specifically about what his wife had been through. And um, she was really relieved that she didn't have to tell him the story and wasn't under any, any, any pressure from him. And she'd given me permission to, if he wanted to know, describe what had happened to her, um, which I did. And um, he then asked for advice and guidance about what do I do next. Late on that evening, the two were brought together in a room with me there and I left them to it and it was fine, it was okay. So, you know, a couple of hours with each person, giving them the opportunity to talk through what their fears and anxieties were, um, it did the trick. And when you walk away from a day like that, what do you do next? Um, well, I think because the people around you are very much looking at you as the the professional, the expert, and we need someone to sort this problem out. You're the person in the frame here. You're the person that we expect will sort it out. And when that solution appears in front of your eyes and you see a good outcome, it's tremendously rewarding. It's something that, as I say, stays with you forever. You don't, you know, that, that day I'll never forget. Um, but in terms of what I do, sit down with a nice glass of wine. <laughs> the and best. And relax and you know, reassure myself that, you know, the, the job's been done well today, but we have tomorrow. 
and you know a family that goes through uh, an experience like this you know that it's just the beginning really of them beginning to adapt and adjust to the experience that they're going through and work starts again tomorrow morning and can you talk us through what sort of conversation you have with someone who's in such a state of of trauma after a horrendous situation and what what are you doing that might help them in that moment and the next few minutes or hours it varies no conversation is the same and in the same way that people who go through traumatic events we always talk about we call it the oh shit moment and we call it that because if you talk to anyone who's gone through a, a trauma, um, once conversations begin to flow and you ask them about what they were doing before an incident, when you begin to ask them about what it was that when the day changed, they normally see something or hear something or something just out of the blue happens. Almost to a man, they will say, I just thought, shit. And it's at that moment that the day changes, the body reacts and people go into fight or flight and they react and do whatever uh, they do. As a helper, turning up at an incident, I'd be pretending if I didn't say, I also have my own you know, moment where you think, mm. right, you know, game on, it's time to, time to go to work. So there's sometimes a mini oh shit moment. Yeah, for you as well. For me as well. <clears throat> and, you know, my colleagues would all say, as you walk up to anybody's house to see them and knock on that front door, you know, the adrenaline is going because you never quite know what's on the other side and we just have to take confidence and reassurance that we have the skills and the, the knowledge to be able to help the person that we're about to sit down with. And, and what are some of the responses that you will see somebody going through uh, as a result of a trauma what are the kind of signs and it, it, symptoms it, it really varies according to the person their network of support their resilience um, the type of incident um, and sometimes if they've been through trauma before a familiarity with trauma sometimes will help people um, in the knowledge that they're going to get out of this and recover at some point on the other hand people who go through multiple traumas it can go the other way and you know really complicate things um, I think my approach is is very much to go in and begin to develop a relationship with somebody I would say 90% of my job is listening and, and it's really really important that anyone who goes through a trauma the first thing they receive is acknowledgement that what you're going through is serious potentially life-changing and it's going to affect you and you know your your family for for some time and for people to hear that honestly and openly and for us to be able to begin to normalize the reactions that they begin to describe and refer to it helps people at a very early stage understand that actually what I'm going through here is to be expected given the situation but because people don't go through these kind of events very often in their life, yeah. when it visits them, they, um, they're not aware of this is how the body reacts, this is what the mind does, this is how my behaviour will be affected. And what does the mind do in those sort of situations? Again, it varies person to person, but for many people who have been frightened by their experience of, a, of an event, initially they 
perceive themselves to be quite helpless. They don't know what is going to happen next, what's expected of them, what should they do. And so to begin to um, help map what the next few hours or the next few days will entail is, for many people, really quite enabling. So to know that um, you know, there will be legal processes, criminal processes, a coroner might be involved, um, the media may be um, you know, hanging around. A lot of these things, for many people, they're unaware that they're going to be happening. And so to begin to know what might happen in the coming days gives people a little bit more confidence to be able to cope with whatever's thrown at them. And so when, when it is thrown at them, they're not as surprised and taken aback uh, and shocked as they might have been had they not been warned this may or may not happen. I'll always remember talking to Kate McCann um, on the record um, about the sort of support you were able to provide for her when Madeline first went missing. You went out to Portugal and she's described how you helped them to feel that they could cope so that they were then able to do what they needed to do in that situation. What's your memories of that time? I would say Kate's comments are very generous. Um, my memory is um, working with a, a tour operator and um, being around for a few hours, going to bed the night before I, I met Kate and Jerry, and uh, I remember my phone going in my room at about 4.30am, something along those lines. And uh, I think the overseas director at the time uh, of the tour operator said that they're ready. I said, OK downstairs in 10 minutes and I think it was 5am um, I was um, meeting Kate and Jerry in their apartment in Pride de Luge but the conversations initially were um, around how helpless they felt to do anything and it was well, what do we do next how do we cope with this um, and so you know my reminder to them was they've got a lot of help, they've got a lot of support here to use that in whatever way they could um, and, and exercise a heck of a lot of patience uh, keep an open mind and let's take it hour by hour For someone who has somebody go missing, deeply shocking, very sudden, traumatic how do you support people in that situation? A situation like that it involves probably some of the most difficult conversations you can have with a mother and a father facing the reality of what, what the range of possibilities might be. And there are times when you touch on you know, the most upsetting of consequences. You'll know this through your work with, with missing people. Some people are quite open to having the conversation about some of the darkest deeds that, that, that may happen to somebody who's missing. When you're working with somebody who you know, tuned into world events and um, you know, the things that go on in society, there's no point, as I call it, dancing around the daisies and pretending that something may not have happened when actually it's the most obvious um, explanation. And so those conversations took place. Um, they were briefly upsetting. And so the, the work was um, often helping just to stabilise those extreme emotions and, and moods um, by talking about other things and trying to let people know what might be in their best interests.
So, and, and you know, what's in their interest is trying to uh, return to some kind of routine as soon as they possibly can because sleeplessness, loss of appetite, um, and extreme emotions mean that routine just goes out of the window when either somebody goes missing or other traumas um, visit a person. And so keeping a routine is pretty impossible to do. But that being, a, if that's an, a set as a, something of an objective, people begin to think about, well, you know, I am going to try and get up at this time even though I'm exhausted and, and think about bedtime being as close as I can to what it might normally be, particularly for, you know, family members and children who are also immersed in a crisis as well. Eating regularly, physical exercise, you know, it might sound odd, but they're the basic uh, human needs for many of us and to suggest that um, we just abandon all those when a crisis is going on, actually, if you can refocus on some of that stuff. It helps you begin to take a little bit of control back over yourself and the situation at a time when you feel like the situation is running away with you and you're losing control. What um, do you think the experience of losing your brother would have been if Michael hadn't been there on that journey with you and your mum? That is a really, really good question. My view is that I will always be indebted to him for, for the support that he gave. How would that experience have been had he not been there for you and your mum? We'll never know. What I do know is that there were some sensitive issues that I wanted to talk about and, and things I wanted to do, which had Michael not been there to say, yeah, that's fine or that's doable, I would never have known if I'd have done that. I'd probably backed off and not asked the question or made a suggestion and so on. So, for example, wanting to um, meet... Um, the survivors uh, of the, the minibus accident uh, who were all in Johannesburg and, and uh, being looked after or had been discharged from hospital. Um, they were able to talk to me about the last 10 days of my brother's life and they were able to tell me about what him and Christine had been doing, how they'd fitted in with the group, how much in love they were, how Chris went and picked you know young uh, kids um, uh, kids up that, that were injured and, and you know with bandaging their knee when they were on a, a trek how Neil was always pulling a leg and you know just a young couple in love and it was a really really important therapeutic thing for me to know that Neil had had this amazing experience that he talked to us about before he'd gone away and I would never have I'd never have found that information out if Michael hadn't have said yeah, that's okay. Because he said to you that it was okay to ask the questions you were asking and to do the things you wanted to do? I think um, maybe the, the people around me at the time thought me wanting to meet the survivors was an odd thing, was a strange thing, maybe even a morbid thing, and was I potentially um, a source of further trauma for the survivors by asking to meet them and, and tell, me, you know, how, tell me about the, the holiday? Um, what Michael knew is actually um, for me to meet those people was not just therapeutic for me but was life-changing for them as well and they were so grateful that a member of the family had actually made that, that effort to acknowledge their suffering and, and sit with them for two hours next to a hospital bed or sit in a hotel reception and you know, hear about the accident firsthand from somebody who was there and that was really important for me to have and in time 
those conversations, all of which I wrote down and, and, and made notes about, I was able to um, pass on to you know members of my family who found that useful to hear about that. And once we got Neil's possessions and his camera and printed out the photographs and everything, we were able to see the little the little African kid who had his his leg bandaged. We were able to see the place where they bought um, a couple of gifts that were found in Neil's bag that were from, for my kids, you know, two little prints that he bought for, for Jess and Joel. And so um, it all came full circle and it wouldn't probably have happened um, if Michael hadn't have been able to say, it's okay to do that and I can see absolutely why you would want to do it. And can you hear yourself in your own practice now absolutely. saying similar things to people? Absolutely. That it's okay to do that? And some of the most useful things that we will do with people who are going through a, t uh, a trauma will be quite creative, quite strange to everybody else looking around. I mean, why would you want to go back to the place in which your loved one's body was found? And there's a lot spoken about people that tip into what's referred to as post-traumatic stress syndrome disorder. Is, is there something that you spot that, that means that some people will suffer that for a lot of years after an event or not what's your experience of that my experience is that if um if people who go through trauma are provided with the the psychological first aid that that we we're lucky enough to provide to to some people in very difficult circumstances my experiences are that those people find out and um, educate themselves at a very, very early stage about what the, the mind and the body is going to do over the next days and weeks. And so they're more prepared and become more resilient as a result and are far less likely to go on to develop longer term problems. And you support train drivers who've witnessed somebody taking their own life on, on a railway track. Mm. How have you helped people who've experienced that awful situation? The greatest one of the greatest challenges for train drivers is that the incidents happened in the workplace and as we've talked about re-establishing normal routines for people who go through a trauma is a key to them adapting and recovering. It's not easy to re-establish a routine when going back to work involves going back to exactly the same place yeah. as where the trauma took place. So, And it's only through building up to that and preparing them for, for those kind of steps that um, they're able to return to driving eventually. Uh, it can take, can take some time. And through your work, do you end up with a thought about how resilient human beings are? We, we, we are, as human beings, you know, we, we break, we bleed, we hurt. Yeah. quite easily and quite quickly both in a physical way but also in an emotional way and that pain and suffering as we both know um, can in the midst of the trauma look as though it's going to be permanent um, but in time and with support people do recover people do adapt and um, you know with, with the work that we're able to do with people um, I hope we help people recover quicker it's funny because many many of the people I work with now, um, they'll often talk to me about how let down sometimes they feel by people they thought actually might have been there for them. And it's a lesson I've learned through the work that I do. 
in every family and every social network there'll be people who step up and help you who you perhaps didn't expect would do and new friendships and relationships develop from trauma that were never there but sadly some friendships that were there often they get lost they become damaged um, maybe because they were fragile anyway but um, people will feel let down by sometimes by people who they just hoped and expected they'd get a bit more from at that time and that's because for all sorts of different reasons but one of them is as you said earlier on you know what do you say to a friend or a family member who's going through the most traumatic experience people are often reluctant to get involved in helping and supporting partly because they don't know what to say or they're fearful of something they do or will say will distress the person further and so the strategy they adopt is well I'll back off for a while and then when they're okay again I'll re-engage and of course that time is probably the time that the, the person who's going through the trauma needs their friend or their, their family member more than ever. You have always come across as very upbeat, very smiley, warm. I f remember the first phone call we had that came across so strongly. How do you live your life having done all of this work and also having been through the loss of your brother? Do you live in a sort of fear of things happening? you think differently about your own family? have to be careful that you don't start treating the world as a more dangerous world than it was this time last week just because you know there's been a terrorist attack in London or or in, in Manchester um, you know these things appear to be happening a little bit more you know frequently but they still are rare events and I think you know, we can't live our lives walking out the door every day thinking that something's going to happen. I'm thinking back to the, the work that you've done supporting people going through awful times what are you proudest of so far? people can put their, their kind of trust uh, you know, in us because we, you only get one chance to look after people and to do it right. If you don't, if you don't get it right the first time, the you, moment's you've gone. lost it, yeah, yeah, and you won't get a second opportunity. And, I, and I'm probably most proud of the fact that when we're you know, very lucky to get these opportunities to work with people who are, to use Michael's phrase, on their knees in grief, we, we take that opportunity and we do a pretty good job of it. And you've been a, a brilliant support to missing people in so many ways and thank you very much for talking to me today. Thank you very You're much. You're very welcome.